This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, hello, hello. Hey, everybody. My name is Jarvis Benson, and I am originally from Grenada, Mississippi, and I am an alumni of the University of Mississippi, and I am one of the organizers of Study and Struggle, and I'll be moderating tonight's conversation, Abolition, Intersectionality, and Care, a conversation about what it means for abolition to be intersectional and how abolition demands a reimagination of what it means to be in community and to care for one another. We are on the second of four critical conversations hosted by Haymarket Books. To see our future schedule and access events such as tonight, you can visit our website, studyandstruggle.com, and click the webinars tab. Study and Struggle is intended to connect and build radical communities across boundaries, whether they be national borders or prison walls. Our four-month curriculum was produced by a team of scholars, community organizers, and currently informally incarcerated people. It centers the interrelationship between prison abolition and immigrant justice with a particular focus on the histories and ongoing freedom struggles in Mississippi and the South. We currently have over 100 reading groups across the world, a dozen of which are in prisons in Mississippi. And we hope that these groups become radical communities unto themselves, which are connected to one another through our pen pal program and to our larger community when we come together once a month for conversations like these. Our critical conversations will discuss the key concepts for the month, and we're absolutely thrilled to have such a fantastic group of thinkers and organizers for tonight's program. And so before I introduce the speakers, I want to thank the organizers and sponsors of this conversation, our entire Study and Struggle team and Haymarket Books. Um, you can support the dozens of Study and Struggle groups outside of Mississippi, which have indicated financial need through our group me, which we're going to link in the chat. And finally, if you're able to make a donation, no matter how small, via Venmo, folks will place that in the chat as well. Um, all donations, including the registration donation that you might have already made, will go to support the Rents Foundation, which works to help individuals and families impacted by crime and incarceration. We're also so grateful to our interpreter and captioning team for their support and to HERD for de developing tonight's accessibility strategy. HERD is an abolitionist organization that supports deaf and disabled communities impacted by the crossroads system, which includes supporting the work of language justice. For tonight, we have a live captioning in English and Spanish and a new deaf-centered model of ASL interpretation that inverts the power dynamics found in typical hearing-centered models of interpreting. To support HERD's work, please see the link in the chat. Okay, so I'm super excited to be here and I'm so glad that I'm only moderating because I'm definitely a little baby abolitionist, so I'm just here, I got my notebook. I'm ready to learn, just sit back, listen, ask questions. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our wonderful speakers tonight and begin our program. And I'll 
wait a little for the interpreters. Okay. So first, Dean Spade has been working to build queer and trans liberation based in racial and economic justice for the past two decades. He's the author of Normal Life, Administrative Violence, Critical Trans Politics, and the Limits of Law, the director of the documentary Pinkwashing Exposed, Seattle Fights Back, and the creator of the Mutual Aid Toolkit at BigDoorBrigade.com. His latest book, Mutual Aid, Building Solidarity During This Crisis and the Next, forthcoming from Verso Press this summer. Andrea J. Ritchie is a black lesbian immigrant whose writing, litigation, organizing, and advocacy has focused on policing and criminalization of women and LGBT people of color for the past two decades. She is currently a researcher with Interrupting Criminalization and works with groups across the country working to defund and abolish policing. She is also a co-founder of the NR Names Network and a member of the Movement for Black Lives Policy Table. She is the author of Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color, and co-author of Say Her Name, Resisting Police Brutality Against Black Women with the African American Policy Forum and Queer Injustice, the Criminalization of LGBT People in the United States. Victoria Law, is a freelance writer and editor. She is the author of Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, and co-editor of Don't Leave Your Friends Behind, and co-author of the new book, Prison by Any Other Name. She frequently writes about the intersections between mass incarceration, gender, and resistance. And Pauline Rogers is formerly incarcerated and co-founder of the Reaching and Educating for Community Hope, or RETCH, Foundation, and Reentry Campus in Jackson, Mississippi. Over 32 years, she, along with her husband, of 29 years, also formerly incarcerated, provides safe and supportive housing for women coming home from prison with zero recidivism to date with those who have been served by their services. An advocate, activist, ordained minister, and forthcoming published author on a mission to help strengthen and enlighten the role of the church in prison justice reform. Okay, so we'll begin this evening as we do with all of our conversations by hearing from one of our Mississippi partners. And so Mississippi legend Pauline Rogers will start by letting us know what's happening in Mississippi and the work of the Wretch Foundation. And then we're going to move on to the Q&A format. And so, Pauline, will you take it away? Good evening. It's good to be here. As uh, Jarvis has already said, I'm here in Mississippi. And if any of you have watched the news lately, uh, since December of last year, we have made national news with the problems that have, were exposed at Parchment. And what's happening in Mississippi and, and the work of REACH, not a lot has changed since that exposure of the live, inhumane living conditions of those uh, in the notorious Parchment prison. Uh, little has changed. In fact, the governor, our state governor, has done zero since that uh, exposure. Conditions have been covered up, if you will. A little paint over a few molded areas. Uh, some people moved out of parchment, but they've been slowly being put back into camps 29 and 30. They were moved into private facilities and now they're being moved back. 
It's not on the radar, but it's slowly happening um, to those who were released from there. Visitation is still non-existent except for legal visitations. No out-of-state transfers uh, for parolees except for a case-by-case study if political push or monetary movement monetarily enforced. Uh, no state funerals for a first a degree relative if of an incarcerated person, no hospital visitations uh, for sick family members, which that's a privilege that's allowed here in the state. All of that has been halted. COVID has added a lot uh, in this occurrence. No urgency, no priority has been given to testing of those incarcerated or staff there have been little over a thousand incarcerated that have been tested. MDOC has reported to date 601 cases among the prisoners with one death. (laughs) And we know that's not accurate. Uh, 145 staffers, the copay is waived, the copay that the prisoner has to pay. Uh, They only get free testing if they have influenza and COVID-like symptoms. Otherwise, it's pay, otherwise, it's pay as usual with the medical care. However, Jay-Z and Rock Nation uh, sued the uh, state and the healthcare facility that was inside the prison are no longer there. So I don't know to date what that uh, replacement has been. And in the recent days, MDOC has fired 10 staffers for corruption bringing in contraband, one as recent as today for bringing in alcohol, had cash money. And these have been employees, some of them have been with the Department of Correction 25 or more years. Uh, And MDOC rejected a $10 million bid to renovate a closed facility that had been closed in 2016 that they are about to reopen, but they're using all inmate labor to rebuild, renovate this facility. Now, I don't know how you can go from refusing a $10 million bid and putting all this labor on inmate labor with zero compensation, but that's what's happening. And that facility is Walnut Grove. But here in all over, we got the election coming November 3rd. Another thing that is happening that we hope that's going to change some of the incarceral uh, uh, things that are occurring is there's a bill, an initiative measure, initiative measure 65 that's uh, dealing with marijuana to legalize, uh, make it medical marijuana usage here in the state. And a lot of people are pushing for that to pass. And we also had budget cuts and there was a bill vetoed recently, House Bill, Senate Bill 2123, that would have granted a lot of people to be eligible for parole that the governor vetoed. People are still pushing against that. Uh, So you have that that's happening. But the big thing that is happening with REACH right now is voter registration push to get out the vote, trying to get formerly incarcerated people out to vote. And one of the things that in this work that we've been doing 30 something years in our 30 year history, we've been revisiting what we've done. We've had 11 successful 
clemency. So we're looking to build on that uh, clemency power, uh, working what we did then and learning from some of the experts in our history to see what we can do to move this state even more forward. So I will pass it back to you, Jarvis, and to the next question. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Pauline, so much um, for giving us that and offering that. Um, okay. Now we're going to begin our discussion portion. So I'll have each of you give around five minutes introducing the work that you do through the framework of abolition as intersectional and abolition as care. And so I'll just pick on one of you. Um, Andrew, do you mind going first? I guess that's what happens when your name starts with A. Um, Thank you so much, um, Jarvis and um, the Study and Struggle crew for having me. I feel very honored to be part of this conversation and um, excited to learn about um, this better interpretation um, strategy. So thank you, Heard, for all you do. Um, I work at Interrupting Criminalization, where I have the privilege of working with Mariam Kaba and Woods Irvin who are leaders in the struggle for abolition, and I get to learn from them every day. And our work focuses on ending the incarceration of, uh, ending the mass incarceration, criminalization, deportation, and detention of women, girls, trans, and gender non-conforming people. And we do, we started from that place because um, black women and girls are the fastest growing and prison and jail populations over the past four decades. And that the populations of queer and trans people in prison are vastly disproportionate, particularly in women's prisons. Some estimates show that up to 42% of people in women's prisons identified as queer or trans or gender nonconforming before incarceration. And so we wanted, and there's very little information or much less information about how police come into contact with women, girls, queer and trans people than there is for um, male identified people who are assumed to be cisgender and trans, I mean, sorry, cisgender and um, heterosexual. And so I want to learn more about what brings police to people like Breonna Taylor's door. We want to learn more about what police contact was producing those numbers and from that, we wanted to move to abolition um, through an intersectional lens. And I'll say more about this as we talk, but um, the other thing I found in my work on policing and Black women, queer and trans people over the past few decades is that when you look at policing and criminalization through the experiences of Black women, girls, queer and trans people, you get to abolition much more quickly because you see all the ways policing takes place, and you see the lie that policing protects women, girls, queer, and trans people much more quickly. And you see um, all the ways in which the state is very intersectional in how it criminalizes people and how, why our response has to be intersectional in order to actually get to abolition. And you see that um, criminalization is the default response 
to every harm, conflict, or need in our society and has been growing in as the default response, in part from people who are asking for better responses to violence in our communities. Um, that has produced this growth in um, mass incarceration and criminalization. But really what people need more of is care. And so the last thing I'll say is we organize our work around six Ds. So we want to document what's driving mass incarceration. We want to decriminalize as much as possible. Um, we want to divert people out of the system before they even come into contact with a cop. We want to decarcerate, get everybody out, and um, we want to divest and dismantle. So many of us talk about defunding police, but we want to defund the whole system. And most importantly, and this is the abolitionist care and, and my favorite part, is we want to dream the world that we want to live in where everyone's needs are met. Um, and as Mariam Kaba says, everyone lives with dignity and safety isn't obtained at the end of a gun. And that is the world we're building, interrupting criminalization that is focused on doing that intersectionally and with care. Thank you, Andrea. Six Ds, that's amazing. Um, really awesome way to frame that. Um, we're gonna give a small moment for the interpreters to swap. So next um, uh, on my list, I will say Dean, do you mind going? Happy to. Really grateful to the organizers and um, to Herd and also to Pauline for that really clear uh, rundown of what is going on in Mississippi. Um, I learned a lot and it was just such a big overview. It's hard to do that uh, the way you did it. So thank you for that. Really makes this conversation rich. Um, I'm part of a variety of different kinds of abolitionist strategies of you know, uh, work with a group that's trying to shut down the detention center uh, here near where I live in Tacoma, Washington, worked on um, fights to stop different um, adult and youth facilities from being built or the prison budget from being expanded here in Washington and here in King County in Seattle. And um, I've also done work for years directly supporting trans and queer people in prisons. Um, and uh, helping them fight for what they need. Um, and this, I liked this question about how is abolition intersectional and care-based? Um, and the first piece around intersectionality, I really think Andrea touched on really well. Like, um, you know, ultimately what abolition is about is that we have this recognition that reforming or trying to fix the police or prisons doesn't work, that in it has often led to the expansion of those various systems. And how do we know that? Often because the people who are harmed most in that expansion are the most vulnerable to criminalization. So Black people, Indigenous people, people with disabilities, women and girls, femmes, sick and disabled people, poor people, et cetera. So it's not surprising that abolitionist wisdom has come from those people <laughs> and that those people are the intellectual basis of the movement and have done the most of the on the ground work. Um, so it's just makes perfect sense that it's intersectional. And I want to give one example, which is um, the Prison Rape Elimination Act, which is a law that was passed. I, 
you know, the idea being to eliminate rape in prisons, which of course we would all want. But actually, rape is endemic to the project of keeping people in cages. Um, and so what the prison rape elimination has been used to do on the ground has been actually to further criminalize queer and trans prisoners. So people in prison have been given PREA violations because they're gender nonconforming or have been further isolated from the general population of the prison and made to subjected to solitary confinement, which is torture in the name of preventing rape. So we see that whatever we add to the system that's supposed to protect vulnerable people actually increases vulnerability. Vicky has many, many examples of this in her amazing new book, Prison by Any Other Name, which I really want to recommend. Um, so Priya is just one example, but we can see other examples, just if I just stick to the kind of queer and trans examples, like if they add queer and trans cops, it doesn't actually stop our communities from being targets. If the cops march in pride, it doesn't stop our communities from being targets. If the cops get trained about us, they tend to get better at spotting us and arresting us. So we see over and over again that we can't reform this system to make it different than its nature. So that's why I think abolition is intersectional. And why it's care-based, what abolition says is that we should divest from the entire racist ideology of punishment. And that actually um, we have to get get away from this idea that there are certain people who need to be contained and need to be cast outside. Because um, we all know it's never actually about who's dangerous, right? The most dangerous people in our society are running oil and gas companies, are the police themselves, are the military, are the bankers. Like these are people who are actually ending lives early, right? People who want to eliminate healthcare or have succeeded in creating an inadequate healthcare system. Um, so the people who get cast as dangerous are not the most dangerous people. They're just the part of the same communities that have always been seen as suspicious or as monsters or less than human through these tracks of ableism, racism, um, transphobia, etc. What abolitionists say is that instead of trying to find dangerous people and punish them, we want to stop harm. So we want to ask, why was this harm able to happen? Why are so many trans people killed? Because they don't have housing. What are the fundamental conditions that make so much danger happen? Why is there so much sexual violence in our culture? Why is there so much gun violence in our culture? Maybe we make too many guns. Maybe we have a, a deep form of patriarchy that governs how we understand sexuality. And so abolitionists asks, ask, what could we do to change the conditions? What could we do to help the person who was harmed or the people who were harmed be able to participate in society again, heal, feel supported and heard, which our criminal system does not do? And what can we do to make harm doers learn how to not do that again? Like how to actually stop the harm, which the prison system doesn't do. One of the big things happening with the defund and divest approach that we're talking about is people always want to say, can we get a different looking police force? Can it be made of social workers or something? But the main way we see abolition is not through 
a different form of a police force. It's through getting to the root causes of why people are experiencing harm. So actually moving money from the police, prison, courts, immigration enforcement system into housing, healthcare, childcare, all the transportation, all the things our communities don't have that really make us unsafe and stressed out and um, unwell, right? So um, so that that's why care is actually central to the abolitionist proposal. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you so much. I'll give the interpreters some time to catch up. Okay. Thank you so much, Dean. That was beautifully framed. That was um, such a beautiful framing of care um, and how it's important to abolition. Um, next, I will um, not follow the uh, alphabet and I'll go to Victoria. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jarvis. And thank you, Study and Struggle Crew, for inviting me to be part of this conversation. Thank you, Dean, for laying out care because then I get to then talk about what uh, care as abolition looks like in practice. Well, you can't see me. Can everybody else see me? Uh, no? Yes? Maybe? Okay. Okay. Um, so if we start from the framework of abolition, we need to remember that prisons and all of its manifestations cannot be reformed to meet people's needs or to be more humane, which is what Pauline and Andrea and Dean have all laid out very beautifully and terribly. Uh, and so we need to look at eliminating them and not just saying, open the cages, let everybody go free and we live in Mad Max world, but actually replacing them with resources and supports that actually meet people's needs. And as Dean put it, reducing and addressing harm and violence, if and when they happen and the conditions that enable them. So if we think of abolition as not just eliminating incarceration, but meeting people's needs and supporting their ability to not only survive, but thrive in this world, we have to understand that care and caring and care work are crucial. In other words, we need to actually look at care work, which is often invisibilized or dismissed or downplayed or ignored as abolition. Uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who is a uh, co-founder of Critical Resistance, talks about abolition as an aspirational adventure. And so we need to think of all of the ways in which we can work towards or uh, go along on that adventure. And one of those ways of doing so is to build a world in which we are valuing care work and community. And during this pandemic, we saw this happening in many places as institutions and places that are supposed to meet people's needs shut down. People were stepping up to connect with each other and to take care of each other. We saw mutual aid organizing and networks form in different neighborhoods and communities. We also saw people doing more informal types of care for each other, including sharing resources, uh, including food, information, medical care. In some places, especially so looking at New York City, where I am, people 
don't often know their neighbors. People go in and out of apartments and buildings and neighborhoods. And with this pandemic, people made efforts to get to know their neighbors. Um, They made efforts to form support networks so that if someone got sick or was afraid of getting sick or simply needed help, there were nearby options. So for instance, getting groceries or medications, and it starts small. You don't necessarily start with a crisis and hope that community and care comes at the very beginning. Um, Did this system or these systems work all the time? No. But does our current system, which espouses individual resilience and you do it and you don't ask for help, um, work all the time? We definitely know that it does not. And it leaves so many people behind. And one of the things about this pandemic is it really illustrated how care work can be political and how it can also be abolitionist because it helps people meet their needs and live a life with dignity rather than relying on coercively controlling and surveilling people um, and threatening them with punishment and caging. And I want to dive into a little bit of recent history of how people have been practicing care work as abolition, even if they didn't necessarily call it abolition at the time. So going back to the 1970s, uh, some feminists, we'll talk about those other feminists later, but some feminists were recognizing the importance of care work, childcare, housework, all of the invisible gendered work that mostly women were doing as work. And they said, we should be recognized for this work. We should be compensated for this work. Uh, We should not be expected to do this work with no recognition, with no uh, compensation, with no support. And so if we think about this idea that care work is work, we have to think of that as a way in which people are providing for other people's needs. If you're doing parenting or childcare or housework, you are meeting other people's needs um, and having their own needs met. We also saw this kind of care work happening inside of prisons. One of the most famous examples happened in the 1980s at New York's maximum security prison, Bedford Hills. Um, So in the early 1980s, when AIDS, when HIV and AIDS was still very stigmatized, It still is today, but at the time it was very, very stigmatized. Uh, Incarcerated women started organizing to break the stigma around HIV and AIDS and educate themselves and provide care for women who had been diagnosed with HIV. Because at the time when people were diagnosed with HIV in prisons in New York and across the country, they were often ostracized, they were discriminated against, they were threatened with or met with violence. Uh, They were often, uh, uh, people would petition to have them be out of their cells. And so what they did was they formed a group called the AIDS Counseling and Education Program, educated themselves, educated each other, cared for people who had HIV, helped them figure out how to get medical care in a prison system that did not want to provide medical care for people to begin with, let alone provide medical care for people with HIV. And in some cases, when people were very sick or dying, were able to go and be with them and provide care so that they did not have to spend their last days alone in a prison infirmary with no one around them, except perhaps a 
an occasional hostile nurse or doctor. Um, in the late 1980s and 1990s, uh, there was a battered women's support group in Illinois' women's prison, and they realized it originally started as a support group, and they realized that they had all been incarcerated for defending themselves against abusive loved ones. And again, this started as care work. How do we support each other through these long or life sentences? And what ended up happening was they said, they started talking and through talking, they realized that they should not be, uh, they should not actually be imprisoned for these lengthy or long sentences. And then they said, uh, we should do something about this. So they petitioned the governor of Illinois at the time to commute all of their sentences so that they should be able to get out of prison. And their effort resulted in a record number of clemencies. 20-something women, I believe it was 25, were granted commutations. And this was something that was unheard of at the time. It was unprecedented. But it was based in them caring for each other, not necessarily starting as a political or abolitionist framework, but just as a way of supporting each other through their incarceration. Uh, in the 1990s, people in California's women's prisons started to organize around healthcare based on their relationships and connections with each other. And so again, they noticed that they were not getting healthcare that met their needs. I mean, nobody in prison really gets healthcare that meets their needs. But what makes that this different is that the women began organizing based on their relationships and their friendships and their networks of care. And then they expanded to building relationships with outside advocates, again, based on this model of community. And we need to actually uh, do, you know, like to work together to improve these conditions and also to challenge these conditions that keep us in prison for long or life sentences. So moving back to the outside uh, and to the present day, uh, one Jarvis mentioned that one of the books I co-edited was Don't Leave Your Friends Behind, which is a sort of primer of sorts on how to provide childcare and deal with children and youth in movements that are often not youth-friendly or children-friendly. So I forgot to say earlier on that I'm thrilled to be here because I'm not only coming here as an abolitionist, but also as a mother. My child is now older, uh, but once upon a time, she was a baby and a toddler and a young child and, and as a caregiver. And when my daughter was small, I used to be one of the few people that would bring my baby, toddler, small child, small disruptive child to different political events. And I used to press for childcare at radical gatherings and political events. And people often said that they didn't know how to deal with children or how to do childcare, basically, again, invisibilizing that kind of work. So with another mother, China Martins, we set out to put together a series of how-to zines, which I would show you, except I can't find them, uh, which later culminated in a book, which basically gives people a blueprint as to how to do this. And since then, we've seen an emergence of childcare and youth activities, which has spread over the past few years. And then moving to uh, present day as well, uh, the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective has a model called pod mapping, uh, where basically, I don't know if you can see the slide, 
I'm assuming you can, uh, what looks like a bunch of circles is a way to show what relationships you have and what you can do, uh, you know, who you can rely on for certain things. So for instance, if I am at the center of this pod map and I say, you know, these are the kinds of supports that I need, you know, and these are the people that I have in my life, you know, who can I call on? Oh, you want me to pause briefly? Okay. Okay. Uh, who can I ask for support of these people that I have relationships with? And one concrete example I want to give is that last, not this past April during the pandemic, but the April before, my partner had a life-saving lung transplant. I don't know if anybody has ever has had people in their lives that have had transplants, but post transplant, you can't leave people alone. They have to, you have to be around them 24 seven because if something bad happens, somebody needs to be able to call 911 or bring them to the transplant center or go to the hospital. Um, they also can't do, at least for lung transplant people, a number of things, including prepare their own food, which might have and clean and do anything that might you know, bring spores and dust and whatnot into these new lungs. And that might've gotten old really fast, but we use pod mapping to say like, how do we ask our community for support and for care so that we're not just isolated in a little pod of two or three or four. And in the end, we had a, a tremendous community that stepped up and offered the support. Over 30 people stepped up over the course of three months you know, ranging from food support, somebody would just come and, you know, bring a meal. So that was one less meal that I had to cook or hung out with him so that I could go take a walk or do something that was not caregiving to actually accompanying him when he needed to go walk or to run errands so that that way I could concentrate on my own work. And these are some of the ways in which we can look at building the world that we want to see and the world that we want to live in through community and through care, rather than saying, uh, you know, abolition is just this tearing down of institutions and not necessarily looking at other ways in which we can come together and build that world without prisons. I'll give some time for the interpreter. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much, Victoria. That was amazing. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Um, thank you. Um, and last, I'll ask Pauline to um, just introduce yourself as well, and then we'll move on to the questions. Again, Pauline Rogers with the Reaching and Educating for Community Hope Foundation. We use the acronyms R-E-C-H, pronounced REACH, uh, silent A, uh, in Mississippi. Um, this abolition work for me, I, I come from a church experience. I don't, bear with me a minute to sound preachy or whatever, but the work of abolition to me is getting back to the beginning. If you ever read a Bible, in the beginning, there was not this big governmental overhead, governmental oversight, governmental operated control land. It was self-governance. You had the access to everything, but you governed yourself as to what you were limited to or had the freedom of. 
And even when Jesus himself came along, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but I came to fulfill it. Now, it sounds like an oxymoron when he said, I came to fulfill it. He came tearing down traditions and what men and women would have done to handle situations. You don't deal with Samaritans, brown, black, Asian, Vietnamese, Jewish, Palestinians, whatever. What do you mean you don't deal with them? You don't heal on the Sabbath. Everything that people were trying to put a law on, condemn people over, he came and tore it down. He abolished it, tore down, destroyed, same as abolishing. He abolished that. So we didn't have all of the oversight and control of of what we have now with the government controlling and money's being allocated to control people. And you just now got this big cycle going on and we judge people. In the, but if you look at the life of Christ, he was engaged with everybody, everyone. And that's the world that I want to see even with dealing with this criminal uh, justice system is tear down the walls that we have built uh, in order to get us to the place of stability, the place of ending mass incarceration. And a part of one of the things to me that keeps uh, incarceration uh, on the forefront is it's like in the school. Each time a teacher sends a child to the principal's office, a record is being created. Every time that teacher says, I can't handle this child and they need to go out of the classroom, down the hall and to the principal's office, from preschool to high school to college, a record has been created. That child has been stereotyped, classified when it may be simply this child is trying to struggle with who they are, who am I, and what do I want to do? And as long as we continue the process of creating records on people, we set ourselves up to be criminalized and incarcerated. So even at work, Every time an employer does an evaluation, a record is being created. So we have to be very conscientious and cognizant when we are in these positions of leadership, not to create a path that would lead to a pipeline to incarceration, whether that's in the school with the teacher who says, I can't handle this child. They need to go to the principal's office. Because when you get to that next teacher, that record from first grade now goes to the third grade. When they look at that uh, record, you have already been classified and stereotyped. So I take it back to the beginning of being cognizant of the records that we create upon children, men, people of color. We're creating all of these records that are traveling with us, with people everywhere we go, every time you sit down and we chatter 
negatively about the other person. We are creating records and these records are stacking up information, piles of information that are being put in the, the gateway of the brain cells, the gateway of the computer, the gateway of the paper, or the phone, the picture that leads to this pipeline um, to prison. So that's what I'll say on that, Jarvis. Thank you. I'll give a minute for the question. Okay. Yes, thank you. Amen, Pauline. That is amazing. That is so right. Um, okay, so now we're going to move into the Q&A format. And so I will pose all of you questions and um, I'll direct questions to you so it's not awkward and you don't know who's gonna go. <laughs> um, and each question, even though I'll pose them, is gonna be open to all four of you. Um, so feel free to pass it to someone if you don't wanna answer or if you feel like it's been answered, then we can move on to the next one. Um, okay, so first question is going to be posed to Andrea. Um, so we're gonna be alphabetical. <laughs> what does intersectionality mean to you? And why is it important for understanding imprisonment and migration controls? Thank you. Um, intersectionality was outlined um, in the Kambahi River Collective statement and uh, before by many black feminists. Um, and I, heard Angela Davis uh, once talk about how intersectionality comes out of organizing and lived experience, not a theory, right? Um, and the, the experience of intersectionality is living at what an organization that really shaped my politics um, calls the dangerous intersections of state and interpersonal violence, for instance, right? It's living in a world of what the Kambahi River Collective calls interlocking oppressions. So it's not about my identity. I'm a black woman, I'm a lesbian, I'm an immigrant, I'm a survivor of domestic and state violence, and that's my intersectional identity. That's not the case. The case is how do I experience um, intersecting forms of violence or how do I experience violence based on intersecting systems of control that operate in my life. So obviously as a light-skinned black woman, that's gonna be a very different experience than um, how anti-black racism plays out for a dark-skinned black woman. As a cisgender appearing uh, woman, it's gonna be very different even though I'm experiencing you know, patriarchy alongside my trans and gender non-conforming siblings. So it's about how systems of oppression um, interact in our experience of the world within the larger context of systemic relations of power. And it's really important for understanding mass incarceration, criminalization, and deportation because those are the systems that maintain those intersecting and interlocking systems of oppression. They're the front line of those systems. When the police come into contact with you, that's what they're enforcing. They're saying, I'm enforcing um, anti-blackness. I'm, I'm enforcing a, a, a system of power in which, um, you know, I'm ensuring that white supremacy is enforced as a direction. So I'm going to understand a black woman um, as 
in that larger system. I'm going to understand someone who's a migrant in that larger system about maintaining a nation state. I'm going to interact with someone um, who's disabled in a way that's about reinforcing ableism um, and able-bodied supremacy. And so those things mean that the people who are most impacted by uh, mass incarceration, detention, and deportation are the folks who are living at the intersections of those um, systems of oppression. So for instance, Black migrants are experiencing very high levels of criminalization, and Black disabled people experience very high levels of police violence. Black trans women experience very high levels of police and community-based violence because they're living at the intersections of multiple forms of oppression um, that are enforced through state uh, violence and state-sanctioned violence. So we need to understand all of the systems that are at play. If we only look at mass incarceration, criminalization, deportation, policing through the lens of an experience of someone who is a young black man who is assumed to be cisgender, assumed to be uh, heterosexual, assumed to be U.S. born, then we're only going to see one slice of the problem. And then we're not going to, the solutions that we propose then will only come at one slice of the problem. And we won't see how the child welfare system is also a system that enforces interlocking systems of oppression. We won't see that, oh, well, well if we read Vicky and Maya's book, we'll know, but um, we won't necessarily see that if uh, we say we don't want uh, policing response to drug, uh, we want public health response to drugs, then we'll see that the public health system was actually set up in a way that was about policing and criminalizing black women, disabled and migrant bodies. And so we're just shifting the policing and criminalization to another realm. And we wouldn't be surprised, for instance, to learn that ICE had forced sterilized black women in detention because that has happened to black women through public health systems since the public health system was established. So I could go on with what that teaches us, but it, that's why I say if we look at the experiences of policing, criminalization, mass incarceration, detention, and deportation through the lens of Black women's experiences. And when I say that, I mean Black trans women, Black disabled women, Black queer women, Black gender nonconforming people, Black migrants. We understand better how this whole system works in interlocking ways and the fact that we have to take it all down um, because otherwise not we won't be able to free all of us. And that's the goal here. Amazing. Okay, Andrea, thank you so much. Very clear outlaying of what intersectionality is and how important it is for abolition. So thank you so much. Does anybody else want to answer that question? Okay. Um, okay, so the second question is going to be posed to Victoria. And it is, why is intersectionality important then for building abolitionist movements? And so I guess going a little bit deeper into why that's important. Well, when we thank you, Andrea, so much for laying this out and you've done so so beautifully, I'm only going to add a quick comment to it, which is when we're thinking about building abolitionist movements, if we don't think about intersectionality, if we don't think about different identities, uh, we end up leaving people behind. We have seen this, and I said earlier we would talk about those other 1970s feminists um, in the battered women's movement. 
that arose in the 1970s and 1980s, in which women were sick and tired of the police not responding to domestic violence calls or not taking seriously domestic violence calls. This did not mean domestic violence was not a problem um, in all communities, but they were demanding a greater law enforcement response when somebody was experiencing family or domestic violence. And what ended up, and they did not take into consideration, nor did they listen to the experiences of women of color uh, and uh, queer women and other women who had never been served by law enforcement and the criminal legal system and who had often been brutalized by these systems, they did not take into account or consider or take seriously these concerns and these experiences. So in calling for greater law enforcement violence, they ended up leaving behind a whole swath of people who were experiencing violence from family members and others who said that they loved them. And increasing policing and policing budgets and police capacity instead. And it was a missed opportunity to say, well, what is it that needs to happen to end domestic and family violence? What supports need to be in place? Maybe we need to uh, close the gender wage gap so that people, you know, so that women are not making half of the amount or 75% of what men are making. And that might enable them to be able to go out and get their own, you know, and get their own apartments. Maybe we need more safe and affordable housing available. Maybe we need better childcare options. Maybe we need to not have a system which tells certain people that it is okay to go and hit certain other people. Because if we think about the way that abuse works, people who are abusive to loved ones typically do not just go around punching their bosses and their coworkers and the cop that gave them a traffic ticket and, you know, other people for whom there would be more consequences for assaulting. So we should look at that as a cautionary tale of not looking at intersectionality when building movements for abolition and instead say, whose needs are not being met? Who do we leave behind if we are not looking at intersecting identities? And then what do we need to do to make sure that we are not creating these systems that further marginalize and endanger and criminalize other people? Give a moment for interpreters. Ready? Okay. Victoria, that's awesome framing. That's really well put. Thank you so much. Who can we hit and who is allowed? Yeah, that's amazing. Um, does anybody else want to um, answer that question? Okay. Um, so the next question is going to be posed to Dean which is how do heteronormativity and binary gender norms contribute to the prison industrial complex? I have to say that Andrea's work is central to my understanding of this, so I hope you might add things. Um, when As soon as I see this question, I think about all the levels of profiling people experience for violating 
gender norms, um, the ways in which our prison system is designed to enforce a gender binary. And and inevitably, that means there's a bunch of people who are punished for not easily fitting in that. So I'm thinking of like a women's prison I knew of that put more masculine or butch women into a separate wing or put them in solitary. I'm thinking of how um, uh, people the prison knows are queer um, in, in both men's and women's prisons or who are identifiable as trans um, are subject to so much punishment. I'm also thinking about, as Pauline talked about, these pathways and pipelines to prison. So because queer and trans people, for many reasons, experience family rejection, experience um, difficulty in the job world, are likely to be in criminalized work if it's the only work they can get, um, are pushed out of schools. Um, and this is you know, far more true for Black and Indigenous um, queer and trans people, for other queer and trans people of color, for disabled queer and trans people. Um, this is going to make people more in the zone of where the police are already targeting people for arrest. These are also the same people likely to be pathologized likely to be seen as mentally ill for their sexuality or gender expression, likely to be locked up in what we might call medical and psychiatric prisons. Our abolitionist project includes opposing all forms of forced treatment. Again, I refer you to Vicky's book for a quick go-to about why. Um, and so there's, there's both the pathways into the system, then there's being in the system. I've had you know clients who were a trans girl in an all boys juvenile justice facility, right? A, a kid's prison and being written up for having her nails long, for having her identity, for going by her name. So she's going to be slower to ever get out of there because she's got this record, as Pauline said. Um, and then, so in all the ways that the time in can become longer and more um, dangerous and traumatizing, these are young people often targeted for sexual abuse and adults in the prison system. And I've also had known a lot of people who couldn't get into like a diversion or drug treatment program because the program was some kind of private place. They don't take trans or they don't want queers, you know, so, or they don't, or they don't have a very good record from their time inside because they kept being targeted. And then when you get out, you got all this, all these obstacles to housing, employment, education, and now you also have this label as a criminalized person, as a diagnosed person from the psychiatric or medical systems. Um, and we have had a kind of gay and lesbian rights formation during my lifetime that's been visible, that has not been on the side of criminalized people. That has, um, the, what has been the gay and lesbian politics most of us have heard of has been about upper class people accessing marriage and property rights. It's not been about criminalized people, even though many of us are in this movement centering criminalized people and poor people. But um, this really relates to what Vicky was saying about a, a strain of the feminist movement that didn't listen to and didn't care about the experiences of the most vulnerable women um, and queer and trans people, and therefore actually built responses to domestic violence that were pro-police. Got the same thing going on on 
the gay and lesbian um, politics side during the same period. So uh, for so many reasons, it is not surprising that there are a lot of queer and trans people in the abolition movement because we um, see how the police and prisons harm our communities and we want something else. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dean. Um, I'll give a moment for the interpreters. Okay. Does anybody want to respond to what Dean said? Only briefly to say that I learned a lot of what I learned from Dean and also from Tourmaline um, and Miss Major and Ms. Janetta and people like Tony Michelle Williams um, in Atlanta and from black, queer and trans people across the country who were willing to talk to me when I was doing research in the early 2000s um, for a report uh, called Stonewalled. And so I just back to this question of intersectionality, like we learn so much about how policing happens, not only on the axis of race, and poverty, but also on the axis of gender and sexuality through um, the experiences of trans and queer people with policing, not just now, but over time. I think sometimes people think that's a newer phenomenon, but actually the, some of the first police forces were, of course, uh, slave patrols, of course, patrols called Indian patrols to keep indigenous people off their own land, um, but also policing in urban areas was explicitly about policing the gender binary, um, policing people's gender in public space and policing people's sexuality, which for black women was always, you know, whether queer or trans or not perceived to be inherently deviant. And so there's so much to learn there about different forms and sites and impacts of criminalization and policing that um, were so lucky that Black trans women continue to be willing to share and teach um, us, particularly given how um, uh, how much there's also an epidemic of interpersonal and community violence um, against Black trans folks that is also not being addressed. And so I just want to lift up, for instance, the, the experience and story of Tony McDade, who was killed by Tallahassee police a few days after George Floyd was killed by police in Minnesota, whose experience of gender violence and transphobia and the violence of the criminal punishment system is very complex and complicated, but also teaches us all we need to know in many ways about all the systems that we need to abolish and all the ways that we need to support people who experience violence, who perpetrate violence based on what they've learned and been taught and how all of that, our failure to address all of that is deadly for everybody. And certainly um, our failure to offer genuine and sustainable safety strategies and create a society where black trans women and gender nonconforming people can survive, but also thrive um, and instead experience tremendous rates of police and other community forms of violence is for me a reason I get up to do abolition every day because that's a responsibility I have and hope that we can all take on. So the next question, um, we're kind of going to switch our, um, yeah, just the topic. I guess we've talked a lot about 
intersectionality. And now we're going to move on to thinking about care a little more intimately. And so the first question is going to be posed to Pauline. So Pauline, how do we reimagine communities as central to the continuation of care? Well, a part of that to me goes back to a perfect garden. Oh, and then even I grew up the oldest of 11 siblings. And when trouble came in the community, you didn't call someone who to inflict punishment or pain. You were sent to grandma's, the next uncle, the aunt. You, you were circled around until you landed into that place where somebody could relate to you in whatever that struggle was. You were treated with punitive punishment in order to deal with the root of where you were. So a part of the uh, continuity of care uh, for people in communities to me is dealing with those influential factors in every community, because every community is different. It's not a one-size-fit-all. If you send a person to a community where the aesthetics, the cosmetics are not up to par, that entire community is already judged and stigmatized. And it's nothing to do with the people. Whoever runs the city should enforce the the codes and laws to keeping the community clean. But it's not, but in, in rather than doing that, a lot of communities hold the people accountable for bad aesthetics. Some of it can be community written if it's if it's um, targeted to one household, but if it's a drainage problem that keeps sewer backed up into whatever, that's a city issue. So a lot of the issues that be placed on people in terms of the continuum of care is the lack of proper appropriations of funding to address a lot of the issues that need to be addressed. If you send a person back to the community and the only available housing for those who've been formerly incarcerated is in this neighborhood, because they can't get a job, they can't find employment, so they are thrust into this community that's unkept, no care, and they get uh, tailored as being just like the community in which they now live. You got a lot of people hanging out and whatever. So that the population and the makeup, and then if you got kids in there, you have to target whether you got children who are school age, your seniors, and if you got these vast majority of diverse people, you have to have the resources, the senior care centers, the gyms, the community centers, in order for these kids to be able to thrive in their perspective, age bracket, uh, sports, whatever, basketball for the kids or whatever, in order for them to thrive. If If you don't, and that's what leads to the path of getting caught up in something wrong, something bad. They just want to succeed like everybody else. But if we don't make the care 
that they need available, then we're setting them up for failure and on the road to the pipeline to prison. Thank you, Paul. I'll give a moment for the interpreters. Thank you so much, Pauline. Um, anybody else want to think about that question? Okay. Next question is going to be for Dean. And it's just, what is mutual aid? Um, what has it looked like in your life? And what can you imagine it as? Thank you. This is such a rich conversation. Really enjoying it feeling really grateful. Um, so the way I think about mutual aid is that it's work where we directly support each other with survival needs based on the idea that the current systems aren't going to do it and that actually they usually make things worse. <laughs> so Vicky gave some great examples about people doing mutual aid work during COVID. A lot of us have seen people delivering each other groceries, um, helping make sure there's masks and hand sanitizer around, you know, stuff the government isn't providing since the government's actually like making COVID worse. Um, but we see this in any disaster. We often see like FEMA doesn't show up or it won't help people who were already displaced or homeless before the fire or the earthquake or the flood. So you got the community doing it, helping all the people who always get left out. But Mutual aid isn't just for those disaster moments. It's also happening in all our social movements. It's when we do child care collectives, when we're giving out food on the street, when we're doing, um, you know, just all this basic work. Free community clinics people had in the 70s was a big example where you had Black Panther clinics, you had feminist clinics, you had gay clinics, you had everybody trying to help each other get healthcare, these volunteer-run grassroots. There's so many examples. The most famous example of mutual aid you hear about in left movements in the U.S. is, of course, the Black Panther Party's survival programs, giving out free breakfast to kids, fixing the road, making speed bumps in Oakland, doing health clinics, doing an ambulance service, saying, hey, Black people are impoverished and under attack in U.S. white supremacist society and are building power by taking care of one another and exposing that it's not the individual fault of people that they're poor. It's a system that sets it up. So it's that destigmatizing, building that shared power and saying, this isn't right. The most important thing about mutual aid is to me right now is that mutual aid is what builds movements. It's the on-ramp. Most people come to movements because they need something like food or housing, they're getting evicted, they're afraid of losing their kids to the child welfare system, their loved ones in prison, whatever, or they've been through something like that recently or care about people going through that and they want to help. That's why people start movement activism. And then oftentimes you're in it, you're part of a group, and you're also learning about more parts of the issue you didn't know about. So it's how our movements build solidarity. I came here because I was mad about what's happening to trans people in the shelters. And now I'm learning about what's happening to immigrants because there are immigrant trans people in this group too. Or now I'm learning about what's going on in foster care or whatever. So mutual aid builds movements and it enhances their 
solidarity and radicalism, because when you're dealing with real people's problems, it's intersectional, like people were saying already in this conversation. The abolition movement has centered mutual aid. We all know about the conditions happening in prisons only because we're in touch with prisoners directly, because the prisons lie about what's going on inside. The police lie about what they do. So mutual aid is essential in building abolitionist analysis. If we listen to what the state said about police and prisons, they've solved all the problems. They're not racist. They're not ableist, et cetera. So mutual aid has been central to abolitionist analysis. It's when I think about like what I shared earlier about the failures of the Prison Rape Elimination Act, we only knew those. I learned about that through queer and trans prison pen pal mutual aid groups that were hearing this over and over again, especially the group Black and Pink, which is a group you can start a chapter of wherever you live. And you can also get a pen pal on their website who's looking for a pen pal right now. And I encourage this as a way for people to plug into abolition right now. You could connect to a prison pen pal, which breaks their isolation and may help them be safer. It exposes, we can expose conditions. Like I have pen pals in prisons who are telling me what's really going on with COVID where they are so I can help get the word out. We need that inside outside solidarity really bad because they are, the system tries to make them politically separate and inoperable. And actually they have the wisdom about this, how the system works and need to lead the struggle. And our direct support back and forth can both build our analysis and help with concrete things like, do they need support for um, letters of support around getting released? Do they need information about benefits or housing in the place they're being released to? Um, do they need books and reading materials, et cetera? Do they need help with their commissary because they're being given less nutrition than could let somebody live, which is happening in a lot of prisons. So um, mutual aid is central to all social movements that are that become powerful and make a difference and it's central to abolition and it's a way that everyone can plug in right now to supporting abolitionist movements okay thank you so much dean thank you so much that's a really great framing of mutual aid and we're all doing it we're doing it right now by sharing knowledge that we know um so thank you so much um so now we're going to move on to the audience questions. Um, and there are several really, really good questions. And the way that we'll do it, um, if you want to answer them, just say them or I can pose them. Um, but I'll just start with the first one and then we'll see how that goes. And then we'll move on. Um, so the first question is, what are some of the ways abolitionists practice are co-opted or undermined? And this is from Nicole Robinson, sorry. Um, and what are the ways we can preempt that from happening? So if you want to answer that. Well, it's hard for abolitionist practices, abolition to be co-opted. It's easier for political forces, the state, the police, the court system, uh, school administrators, 
to co-opt the language of abolition. So in schools and in some communities, we see courts and schools adapting language of restorative justice. So restorative justice, as opposed to the criminal justice or the criminal legal system, says, you know, some harm has been done. Benny, Benny and Joan got in a fist fight. Let's sit them down and figure out what the causes are. And the point is to iron out the problems and restore them to what happened, you know, the, the way things were before. This is a very over oversimplified version of this. Uh, but for time's sake, I don't want to go into the whole other, you know, thing behind it. But it takes to, uh, and this is something that schools have then taken on to say, yes, we can do restorative justice to decrease the number of school arrests or the number of school suspensions that we have. But at the same time, they're not practicing restorative justice and saying, what are the reasons why this happened? And what are the underlying causes? It addresses the immediate problem with the stick of if you don't comply or if school administrators don't like the way this is going, we will still suspend you or call the police or have you arrested. So we can see how these, the language and some of these ideas get co-opted and twisted so that now you have prisons that are doing restorative justice circles um, in which they have people come and they use the language and some of the ideas behind restorative justice, but they're actually not doing restorative justice. They're doing a type of group counseling or a group type of like group therapy or group education, but it's not restorative justice. So I think that um, we need to understand that it's, I don't want to say it's impossible, but it's very hard to co-opt abolition into a criminal legal institution or reform, but it's easier to co-opt language and pull out bits and pieces and say, look, now we're doing restorative justice. We see this also with calls to defund the police, where it's been twisted around to say they don't mean defund. They mean, uh, you know, body cameras and more black police or body cameras and more sensitivity training. And that's if you look in the dictionary, I'm pretty sure that's actually not what the word defund means. But so we need to keep in mind that language can be co-opted, practices can be twisted around, but abolition is not as easy to co-opt. Um, yeah, I just wanted to give two some examples from my own locality. Um, so for maybe eight years, we've been fighting this battle in um King County, where I live on Duwamish land, to stop the county from building this $230 million youth jail. Probably ended up being more than that. But um, And while we were fighting this battle, we were facing the things you could imagine. They were saying, this new youth jail, it'll be good for the kids inside. It'll be a nicer jail. Classic move, you know, prison expansion in the name of somehow benefiting prisoners classic move. And we, we, you know, a lot of the nonprofits bought into this. It was really a bummer. It was, it took a long time for us to build. Um, it was real ragtag group that were abolitionists that were saying this isn't right. Over time, we actually built more and more consensus in the County. This is a terrible idea. Let's close the jail and actually support people, young people and their families to thrive instead of finding better ways to criminalize them. But 
during the fight, the county and the city passed zero youth detention ordinances. So they passed these laws that had no teeth and that meant nothing that said they were committed to the idea of zero youth detention. Sounds abolitionist because that's what we're fighting for is get the people out of the cages. And they even hired, I think, like a zero youth detention staffer in the county while they built the jail which at any point they could have stopped and repurposed into housing, into anything that our communities actually need. So that was a trip to see these, because we, I live in this region where the people want to appear progressive, the electeds. So they just take the words right out of your mouth and apply them to their terrible project. Um, also seeing this with some of the work to defund the police, they will just move the money around so it looks like they took the money away. <laughs> But they're, and then they can be like, look, I'm this wonderful pro progressive, um, anti racist politician, but actually I won't touch the police budget, really. Um, I just want to say, I, I love what Vicky said. The reason we have an abolitionist politics is so that we don't get fooled by these reforms that expand. And one chapter that I was just teaching my students from Vicky's book is about electronic home monitoring and how there's actually, and probation and how these kinds of systems that look softer then take in more people. More people get actually locked down in their homes um, and at any time can be violated and stuck back in a cage. So I just wanna say like, this is exactly what abolition is about, is not accepting these lies um, that say they respond to our community's concerns, but actually strengthen and usually expand the system. Thank you. Just to expand on the building and expanding the system, I want to name that we're in this moment where obviously a lot of people are talking about accountability for police who do harm, including accountability for the police who killed Breonna Taylor. And... Um, we cannot build the system that we're trying that killed Breonna Taylor in demanding justice for Breonna Taylor. And also the system that killed Breonna Taylor is not going is not set up to provide justice for Breonna Taylor. And so I, I think where sometimes we get stuck and I don't know that it's co-optation um, as much as just struggling, but I think it can be co-optation. Um, People say, I'm an abolitionist and I want a prosecution of police officers who kill people I care about. I want to put more money into controlling the police, into setting an oversight body over the police. I want to put more money into a decertification process. I want to create a system of accountability for a system that was set up intersectionally to kill Breonna Taylor. And so... Um, and everyone else that's ever killed or incarcerated or harmed or sexually assaulted. And so I think we really need to understand and think about abolition as the ultimate accountability strategy, that we need to understand defunding the police as the ultimate accountability strategy if, and understand reparations as opposed to you know, restorative justice um, as the ultimate way that we 
ensure that people are compensated for harm they experience, even though you can never compensate for the life of someone killed or raped or assaulted or criminalized, frankly, by the police. Um, but that there's some compensation about restoring some healing opportunity, some some resources to people and communities harmed by police, that we get accountability where someone has to look at someone and hear about the harm that that they did to them and taking their daughter away from them while she slept in her bed or a man while he walked down the street or a trans woman who received no protection or safety. Um, and we need most important elements of the reparations framework is cessation and non-repetition. So actually these frameworks point us towards more accountability. It means actually that we're going to end up, that we are going to create a society where Breonna Taylor would still be with us and that we would stop the systems that killed her um, from coming at her and all the angles that it, that they did. And so I think for me, it just feels so important to say that abolition, and I say this as a survivor and as someone who's worked on police violence for most of my adult life, for me, abolition is about wanting better and more for survivors like myself and for the people who I struggle alongside and with who experience police and state violence. And what we're getting from this system right now is not accountability. And the answer, I don't think, is to keep trying to make it do what it wasn't set up to do. Mariam Kaba often says, why do we keep trying to ask the police to not be police? <laughs> um, and instead, can we actually demand a world where accountability and transformation for survivors of all kinds of violence and families of people who don't survive is real. And that's the world I'm fighting to build through abolition. And I hope that um, we can all get there together. Yeah, better and more, like, absolutely. Um, thank you so much to you both for answering that question. Um, because we're coming up on time, it's 8.30 now, um, and when we, we want to be respectful of um, everybody's time. So we don't have any more time for the audience question. Um, unless, Pauline, did you want to um, add something to that? No, I'll pass. <laughs> okay. That's sure. good. Yeah. Um, well, we want to... Um, just close out by um, all of you just ending any statements that you want to add about the importance of intersectionality and care um, as a critical lens for this abolitionist study and struggle that we're going to be working with for a long time. So, um, Andrea Paz, um, I'll toss it to Pauline. Do you have any closing statements? I just want to again say to anybody that's out here that's in, in, in from the church perspective that I came from, the pulpit has to be very careful not to add harm in attempting to do good because it's happening. Uh, I grew up in my lived experience, the worst predators, uh, child molesters, uh, sex traffickers, traffickers that I ever ran across came from the pulpit. And we have to be very careful that we're not using the good book to cause great harm. And that is happening. And to get back to the part of abolition comes largely from the world of the church to restore people black to a rightful place and not to 
create that harm. And I'll pass it back to you, Jarvis. Thank you so much. Dean, do you want to give a closing statement? I just want to say this work is really hard and we all have to dive into it to win. And also um, that we need to show that care with one another. Um, there's just, there's, there's so much pressure on us all right now. And there's more pressure coming as climate change worsens, as the pandemic goes on, as the economy crashes and under stress, most of us have a harder time being patient, kind, compassionate, open, influenceable, willing to stick to our principles, but also hear others. And so what we're all hopefully joining groups and building more relationships to do this work. And, um, we have to show so much care. We may not like everybody that we're in groups with, but we do love each other and how to hold on to that when we're having conflict in the work. I just want to add that because it is one of the biggest threats to our work is that we start acting like the, the way the cops and the prisons have trained us. We throw each other away in the work. How can we have generative conflict, receive and give feedback change and heal instead of throwing each other away or, or disappearing when someone gives us feedback. So I just want to suggest that. And many one resource and that I think Andrea mentioned before is transformharm.org. It's a website that has collected so many different um, materials and resources about self-accountability and about resolving harm inside groups and relationships. And I just really encourage us all to use that resource. Yes. So. Again, to echo what we've been saying on this panel is that we need to see care as central to abolition, not as an afterthought or an addendum, but this is crucial if we're going to be talking about tearing down prisons in all of its manifestations and building a world in which we can survive, thrive, live with dignity. And again, I also want to echo what Pauline said earlier about the appropriation of funding so that we can build care and community rather than policing and prisons in all of its manifestations. So, I mean, we live in a society where people, uh, where the police budgets get money, uh, you know, millions and millions of dollars, and we're cutting from mental health care or health care, uh, from schools, from childcare. Uh, so we need to co also come together in these communities of care to demand these resources, because as much as I love my community, and mutual aid has helped us, there is no way that I was going to be able to provide a lung transplant for my partner, you know? So, but why is it then that like, so we need to demand that these resources come into play and be put into life-saving uh, institutions and systems rather than in these death-making institutions. Okay. All right. Andrea, you okay? Okay. Um, well, that's it from us. Um, I want to say thank you so much to all four of you again. Um, Y'all are beautiful, beautiful people, um, like not for your like labor or your work, but because of your hearts and that's shown tonight. So thank you so much for everything you've said. Um, I know a lot of people have learned a lot and including me, I have pages of notes. So thank you so much. Thank you again to Herd um, for your interpreting. Um, thank you so, so much. And also thank you to Haymarket Books um, for sponsoring and hosting us. 
And thank you to the audience. I'm trying to make sure to my mama. Um, and I think we're good. Um, thank you so much. Y'all have a great night and we'll see y'all later. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.